grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everyone. How is everybody today? Have you had a great day? I have. I've had a great day. It's been a very productive day. I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. My music just kind of popped on. I heard it. Anyway, I'm going to be <laughs> things that happen. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. I've got a great guest lined up for you tonight. We're going to be talking about mind control. And my head is on crooked. There we go. There we go. I have to think about making sure my head's not crooked. Anyway, we're going to be talking mind control. And uh, he's written a book. Uh, he, this gentleman's written a book called Project Shamaleo. And it is about mind control and other things that went along with that. So we're going to talk to him. It's a, it's a true account of what happened to somebody. In the meantime, I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. You can find us at CaliforniaHaunts.org, even though it's not there right now because I'm changing it over to another website, to another web carrier. Uh, but you can find us at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com right now. So uh, check us out over there. All our videos are there. we got more than 200 videos over there that you can check out. And if you're watching from YouTube, welcome. I, I welcome everybody that watches from YouTube. Um, please subscribe. Uh, there's that little ghost guy down the right-hand corner uh, with the Sherlock Holmes hat on and the magnifying glass. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Anyway, a few minutes here, a minute or so here, we're going to get our guest on, and I'm really excited about this. Last night, you know, we talked about, we, we talked with, the, with, with Lynn, the remote viewer, and so this is something totally different, okay? So this is, this is just, remember when they were talking about mind, he was talking about mind control and stuff. This is, this actually happened to somebody, and uh, I heard the story on the show, and it was, it was absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into the show, okay? Hello, sir. Yes. How are you today? Oh, I'm I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Tell us a little bit about you. Um. Uh. Well, uh, I I teach at uh, uh, CSU Long Beach. Uh, I've been teaching there since. 2002, off and on. Um, I teach creative writing, literature, uh, composition classes. Uh, I, I'm a writer. I've uh, published eight books so far, or seven, and the eighth one is, is on its way. Uh, in fact, it should be out in a couple of months. Um, and uh, I, I've published both uh, fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, almost equal uh equal amount of fiction and nonfiction, uh, short stories, nonfiction, novels, novellas. Um, just last year, I had two books published in the same week, uh, Bella Lugosi's Dead, uh, which was uh, a novel um, set in 1980s Los Angeles, uh, kind of a dark fantasy revolving around the, the uh, life and legend of Bella Lugosi, and also a collection of four novellas uh, that came out from Eraserhead Press, called Widow of the Amputation and Other Weird Crimes, which was a collection of four novellas that all take place in different areas of Southern California. And the, the title 
uh, novella, Widow of the Amputation, is all about uh, Charles Manson busting out of prison and then uh, stealing the severed head of Mary Magdalene from a refrigerator in the Union <laughs> Bank building in Torrance, California, and going on a road trip to Death Valley. Um, so the subject matter of my books tends to be uh, odd. Uh, whether it could happen. Or it, it could it, happen. It, yeah. it could and probably has happened. You know, I don't know if you realize this. There are there are coroner's offices and morgues where they don't have a lot of room for you know storage of, uh, of the John Doe's. So what they do is is they keep the heads. Really? Yep. Uh, they just they just keep the and then what do they do with the rest of the body? Cremate the rest of the body. I see. And so are they just like inside a tiny vault? Yeah, so it's it's a refrigerator. It's like a, I've seen it. I'm not going to say what county here in my area, but. Um, it's like a refrigerator. It's a, it's a big vault. You look at the refrigerator, and there's there's like shelves in the refrigerator. I see. Well, you know, in Southern California, uh, there used to be a corporation called the Alcor Society, A L C O R, where you would pay them to either freeze your entire body or to just freeze your head, which was cheaper. Uh, and then they moved from California out to, I think, Arizona, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, uh, there were rumors that uh, you know they they had Walt Disney's head, but that, that's not true. But Timothy Leary was very interested. Uh, he wanted to have his head frozen, uh, but ultimately he did not. He was cremated and shot into space uh, along with uh, Gene Roddenberry's ashes. That's but fascinating. Alcor Society is still there. If you want to get your head frozen, they're there. They're they're ready and willing and waiting. That's really fascinating. Really fascinating to me. That's why yeah, I had I had a student. I had a I was teaching a class called Creative Nonfiction, which was a class like writing about autobiographical stories, things that mm -hmm. actually happen to you, but to shape them in, in in a way that is interesting and compelling. And one student wrote an essay about uh, taking a tour of the Alcor Society mm -hmm. out in uh, Arizona. It was uh, it, it was kind of a, a fascinating. Uh, essay where they they took her on a tour and showed her all the facilities and you know the, the, yeah. the prices <laughs> and how, what, what their plan is in case there's a major power outage i guess uh <laughs> that would be a concern of mine i think you know well those places are funny like that because i remember that the coroner's uh, not the coroner yeah the coroner's office they, they have a sense of humor all their own and so they would enjoy like springing things on me like they had these I, jars full of things, you know, on 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 the shelving, and they'd say, "Well, what is this?" And I look at it. I don't know. I don't know anatomy. That you know, it looks like a looks like a spine to me. No, that's that's the what do you say? That's the guy's throat. And I'm like, okay, what do you think's in the throat? I'm like, well, I don't know. He says, well, he was really drunk and he came home late one night, and he always did this, and his wife was mad at him, so she fed him a steak fajita and left him sitting on the counter, or left him sitting on the chair. She woke up the next morning, and he was keeled over. So we still have this the throat with the steak fajita in it. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> I, I I saw a lecture by Clive Barker, the horror writer, yeah. who you know wrote and directed Hellraiser and wrote the Books of Blood, etc. And uh, he said um, he actually sat in on an autopsy, uh, uh, and he said that the the person who was doing the autopsy liked to. Um, play their own little jokes 
uh, uh, you know, like they, uh, there's a certain amount of rigor mortis set in. Yeah. So they knew that the corpse was actually going to, um, like move at a certain point. Uh, um, and, uh, and, and they, and, and, uh, they, they let Clive Barker, uh, do something that, that, uh, initiated movement on the corpse to try to scare him, but it didn't, it didn't quite work. I, I remember him saying that he faints at the sight of his own blood, but he had no problem uh, sitting through this autopsy, which I thought was strange. And he said uh, wonderfully uh, unexpected occurrences would happen. For example, uh, suddenly a fountain of urine shot up out of this corpse. Yeah. And, and the guy said it was because he died desperately needing to go to the bathroom, and that's, that's what happened. Um, there, there's a whole documentary called The Act of Seeing with Your Own Eyes, which I guess is the actual literal definition of the word autopsy. It's what it means. Uh, uh, and the, the whole documentary is all about um, autopsies and, and uh, coroner's offices. And yes, they, they do tend to have a kind of a gallows humor. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they do. Well, let's look at your book. What is Project... I'm gonna, am I pronouncing it right? Chameleo? Is that the pronunciation for it? Uh, uh, Camellio. Okay, Camellio. Shows you see? Yes. The, the, the book, the full title is Camellio, A Strange but True Story of Invisible Spies, Heroin Addiction, and Homeland Security. And it is indeed a strange but true story. Published by Aura Books in New York. And mm -hmm. uh, it first came out in uh, 2015. Um, and in fact, I just had a follow-up article in the Nexus magazine that came out January, February issue of Nexus magazine. I had an article in there called Invisible Predators, which kind of is a follow-up to the book, um, in a way. Um, but yeah, Camellio, um, uh, the name Camellio comes from an actual, uh, Project Camellio, which was a, a, a private, um, um, effort on the part of uh, two scientists, Richard Schoengert, uh, who was a professional engineer who worked in and out of the military and in private industry for many decades, uh, from the 50s onward. He retired in around about 2014, in fact, about a year before the book came out, um, and uh, only recently passed away. Uh, and his partner, Dr. Lev Berger, uh, eminent physicist, um, uh, Richard, Richard was the one who initiated Project Camellio and later brought, uh, Dr. Lovberger, uh, into the, into the project. Uh, but basically it was an attempt to, uh, create, um, optical camouflage technology, uh, which simply means invisibility technology. Mm. Uh, the main purpose was to camouflage, uh, soldiers in the battlefield, but had many other purposes as well. And um, Schoengert, Richard Schoengert, uh, was the first person to be awarded an actual patent in optical camouflage uh, technology um, back in the 1980s. Um, I, of course, was not aware that uh, Richard Schoengert was up to any of this. I, I mm -hmm. didn't meet him until... 2006, uh, but my interest began in July of 2003, uh, which is when the, the story of Camellia really begins, um, because my friend Damien, who I 
I had grown up with him. I met him on my 16th birthday. Um, so I, I had known him a long time up to this point. I was living in Torrance at the time, Torrance, California. And uh, Damien was living in uh, the Pacific Beach area of San Diego. Uh, and uh, Damien's house at that time was kind of a, a party house, I guess you could say, people coming in and out all the time. Um, and this kid, I say kid, I'm, you know, he was in his early 20s. Uh, his, his name was Lee or Doyle, depending on who you speak to. Uh, Lee uh, had gone AWOL from Camp Pendleton, which is a Marine base very close to the Pacific Beach area where mm -hmm. Damien was living at the time. And uh, Lee had gone AWOL and somehow entered Damien's orbit. And Damien didn't know he had gone AWOL. Uh, he just knew he was his kid and needed a place to crash. So he was like, sure, why not? Uh, you can sleep on my couch wasn't really an unusual thing for Damien to do. Uh, so the kid crashed on Damien's couch and unbeknownst to Damien, when the kid had gone AWOL from Camp Pendleton, he had brought with him um, a nine millimeter Iraqi gun that had been taken off the body of a dead Iraqi general, uh, over two dozen pairs of these high tech night vision goggles and the DOD laptop computer uh, and an entire truck. Um, and uh, Damien didn't realize that, um, he didn't realize that this kid had gone AWOL or, was, or that people were looking for him. Uh, so he just, he throws a party one night uh, when the, the kid's still living there and there's all these people there and various illicit substances are being ingested uh and suddenly the kid pulls out this laptop and he opens it and a dod symbol appears on the screen and damien sees that and immediately says okay you gotta get your stuff and get the hell out of here mm -hmm. um and the kid says no, no, no don't worry um yeah, they can't they can't track this stuff uh soon after that there's a knock at the door and it's this woman who identifies herself as uh, a special agent, Lita Johnson. That's not her real name, but that's the name I gave her in the book. I have her real name, uh, but I decided to give her everything in the book is true except I changed some of the names. In fact, even Damien's name is changed to, to Dion in the book, but he said he didn't mind if I used his name in interviews like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, so, so special agent Lita Johnson shows up at the door with these two goons in, in tow and she says, uh, can we search your apartment? And Damien says, Damien, whose father was a narcotics officer, so he was well aware of his rights. He said, uh, do you have a warrant? And she said, no, but I can go get one. He said, why don't you come, you know, come go get a warrant, come back. Slams the door in her face. She leaves. Uh, he immediately turns to everyone else at the party and says, okay, grab your stuff, meaning your drugs, and go out the back. They throw their drugs down on the on Damien's carpet, uh, sensing that uh, the heat is, is nearby, and they take out, run out the back. Uh, the San Diego Police Department and the NCIS show up. Uh, not long afterwards, they arrest uh, Lee slash Doyle, and they arrest Damien, and they drag them both down to the uh, 
San Diego jail. Damien said they seemed to have absolutely no interest in any of the drugs that were littering the carpet. Um, they were hyper-focused on these night vision goggles. They wanted to know where these night vision goggles had gone. Damien, they, they take him down to the jail. Uh, they give him the Abu Ghraib treatment for several days. Uh, they're interrogating him. Uh, he, Damien, since I, as I said, his father was a narcotics cop. Mm -hmm. He didn't have high respect for uh, law enforcement officers of any kind. So uh, he probably wouldn't have cooperated anyway, even if he actually did know what was going on. But the fact is, he had no knowledge of any of this. It was just a coincidence that this kid happened to be sleeping on his couch. So he, he, they wanted to know, you know, when did, how did the kid grab the stuff, how long have you been there, what were they intending to do with the stolen equipment. They had got it into their head that Damien and this kid were going to like sell this equipment to some foreign entity, Al-Qaeda or something. Uh, Damien just kept saying, look, I don't know anything about this. Uh, I just let him sleep on my couch. That They would not accept that as, as an answer. It's, it's a very Kafka-esque story. It's like Franz Kafka's The Trial, but mm -hmm. set in San Diego in the early 2000s. Uh, and so Damien just kept telling him, listen, I, I don't know anything. Um, after about a week, uh, they finally let Damien go. And Damien comes home and he, he calls me. And I'd been calling him for several days. It was very strange. Usually when I left a message, he would call me back, you know, fairly quickly, a whole week went by and I, I was wondering what the hell had happened to him. He calls me and he tells me this whole story, everything that I just told you. He'd been arrested, they interrogated him, they let him go, and we both thought, well, that was weird, but obviously uh, wiser heads prevailed and they realized that Damien didn't know anything, so they just let him go. Um, flash forward a few days, uh, Damien calls me and tells me that he's being followed all around Pacific Beach by these like jarhead looking guys and, and not just one or two like a whole parade of these people would follow him down Garnet Avenue in Pacific Beach they'd follow him into the 7-Eleven out again uh, into the Mexican restaurant next door he'd sit down all these uh, weird military looking guys would take seats at the booths around him uh, they weren't even trying to disguise it. It was as if they were going out of the way to let him know that they were following him. Um, and he said that they were parking outside his apartment complex, uh, beeping their horns at 2.30 in the morning, shining halogen lights into his bedroom window. Um, some of them would park themselves outside, right outside his kitchen window and talk to each other about him as if he wasn't there. All this weird kind of performative, disruptive behavior. Um, and when he first told me about it, I thought that maybe he was suffering from some sort of meth-induced paranoia. I wasn't entirely sure how to interpret any of this. Mm -hmm. So I, I said, why don't you take some photographs or why don't you write down license plate numbers then? Um, and he actually he did that. And the whole list of license plate numbers is in fact in Camellio on page 50 or so. I can't remember the exact page at the moment. Uh, and I had just so happened I had a friend who worked at the DMV up in the Pacific Northwest. So I sent him the list of license plate numbers. And uh, my friend ran, ran them through 
the DMV. And uh, all of them came up as non-existent, officially non-existent, which I thought was odd because if Damien was just being paranoid, then obviously the license plate numbers would come up as vehicles that are owned by people who live in Damien's neighborhood in San Diego and Pacific Beach. They wouldn't come up as non-existent. So that was like the first indication that, well, maybe Damien's not suffering from meth-induced paranoia. Maybe this is actually happening. Um, so he would call me from time to time with updates. Um, and, the, you know, um, they would continue the same thing I've already described. would continue mm-hmm. with the harassment, the following him around, the bombarding him with allergen lights. And, um, and but then occasionally, um, all the cars would suddenly back out and leave. And then uh, Lita Johnson would show up. She'd knock at the door and say, how's everything going? Or have you remembered anything? Do you have any useful information to share with us now? And he would say, like I told you before, I don't know anything. So no, I don't have anything new to tell you. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, here's my card with my number. Um, if you remember anything, you call that number. And then she'd get in her car and leave. And then all the cars would come back. And same same thing would start all over again. Lights through the windows, honking the horns, all the weird uh, surveillance and harassment behavior. Um, and the whole thing would uh, begin to intensify mm-hmm. as the, the months uh, wore on. Um, uh, I, I should mention that, uh, he was living in an area of Pacific beach where he was surrounded by a lot of San Diego is the military town of, of military towns. Uh, and he was surrounded by corporations like, uh, SAIC, uh, science applications, international corporation mm-hmm. and, uh, ATC American technology corporation, which specialized in creating, uh, what's known as, uh, acoustic bullets bullets made out of sound, um, uh, which might explain why one night uh, in the middle of all this, I'm talking to him and suddenly I hear like a pop, pop, pop and all the stuff, all the little tchotchkes on the shelves uh, around him just started exploding um, as if like poltergeist behavior, uh, you know, like um, just things just flying off the shelf, shattering. Uh, Damien, who's been in and out of jail his whole life, he's, he's he was homeless in Washington, D.C. for a time. Um, you know, he doesn't get scared easily. He was reduced to a, a gibbering mass uh, of protoplasm hiding underneath his uh, living room table as all this stuff was shattering around him. He's on the phone uh, practically crying um, because he's totally freaked out. And I, you know, I, I heard that happening uh, as, as it was occurring. And uh, he said it was as if these invisible bullets were coming through the wall and just shattering everything. Um, Sometimes uh, all the ambient noise in the apartment would just stop, uh, which sounds kind of like, well, so what? But Mm -hmm. uh, it was very weird. I actually experienced that. I'd be talking to him on the phone, and you can hear ambient noise, like the cars passing in the background, things like that. All that would just end, you know, birds birds twittering in the background, just all that would suddenly stop. And he would say, oh, it's happening again, the silence. We started to call it the cone of silence, like from the Get Skull, Get Smart TV mm-hmm. series. Yeah. They put the, the cone of silence down. 
it was like that kind of effect. And you might first, you know, you might say, well, big deal, but actually it has this weird kind of like a Chinese water torture effect. And when you take all the, the sound away, um, he, he started telling me that he was like in his bedroom and a silhouette of a hand with a gun in it was projected on the wall of his bedroom and it would, it would tilt down until it was pointed at his head and then tilt back up again. And then this kind of mass of black uh, energy, like amorphous black energy, actually crawled across the floor of his bedroom, entered his leather jacket, which was lying on the carpet, and then the leather jacket kind of filled up and crawled across the floor by itself. Wow. Um, then, he, then he tells me that the apartment is, is, is growing and or shrinking, uh, depending on the occasion. Uh, and he wasn't the only one who saw this. In other words, he'd get back to his apartment and it would, the apartment would look larger on the inside than on the outside, like Dr. Who's TARDIS. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would look like it was smaller on the inside than it used to be. Uh, his friends, uh, two of his friends saw this. They actually came over with no prompting at, at all. They said, is the apartment growing? Um, uh, there was one day where he looked out the window and the scenery that had always been there, the Vons, the parking lot, that was gone. And instead, it was replaced with, like, this weird, like, alien landscape, like, out of a Boris Vallejo painting with mm -hmm. three moons in the sky. And he thought, what the hell is happening? And he opens the door, and the scenery is exactly like it always was. There's the Vons, there's the parking lot, people walking by with their dogs. Closes the door, looks out the window again, it's the same weird... Uh, science fiction-y uh, scenery outside. Um, and um, then all the neighbors moved out. All the people who lived in the complex moved out within a very short space of time, and, and new people, completely new people moved in. Um, uh, he, at one point, he got really fed up with the people who were outside his kitchen window who would talk to each other about him as if he wasn't there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one day he was like making lunch. So he just started grabbing like whipped cream, peanut butter, baking soda, all this weird stuff and started mixing it together in a bowl, jello. It was just until it was this nice goopy mass. And then he ran out and he just dumped it over the fence and hit these two guys in the head and they were covered with it. And they just ran off into the Vaughn's parking lot trying to get this goo off of them. Uh, flash forward, <laughs> there's a reason I tell that story. Flash forward, uh, Damien tells me after like, after this has gone on for several months and he's completely stressed out by all this. Uh, he, he tells me, well, I'm thinking of calling this NCIS agent, Lita Johnson. and. Maybe I can offer my services to her. He had heard a rumor that perhaps these night vision goggles that they wanted had been sold to the Hells Angels so that they could use them to run drugs over the border. Because, of course, Pacific Beach isn't that far from Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, he was going to meet with her and suggest, well, maybe I can help you get these things back. you know. And I said, that's a really bad idea. If they're just going to think that you knew this all along and you've been withholding it from them and now you're like doing a shakedown or something. He said, no, 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 no. You know, who knows? Maybe they'll put me on the payroll. I mean, maybe this can be a good thing. <laughs> uh, and, and I said, that's, you shouldn't do that. But he went ahead and did it anyway. He called her. 
and they met on uh, they met at a bagel shop on Garnett Avenue. Anyone who lives in that area knows the shop because there's only one bagel shop on Garnett Avenue. He meets with Lita Johnson and Lita Johnson's superior. So that's how serious they took it. That Lita Johnson brought her superior with her to meet with this guy. Right? Uh, and Damien sits down and tells them his proposal. Maybe I can get this stuff back for you. Maybe you put me on the payroll. And then they immediately, they, uh, they, were, they were not happy. And they did not react well to this, but it was interesting. This was the, one of the few times, in fact, the only time that Lita Johnson actually admitted that the surveillance was in fact happening, that this was not something that was going on in, in Damien's mind because uh, Damien said, listen, I, I don't know what you want from me, but I'll just, I'll do anything. I, I just, I don't want to have any more food fights with the feds. And Lita kind of half smiled and laughed and said, oh, yes, that, that made us all laugh. <laughs> uh, that, that was the one time where she actually admitted that this was going on. And every other occasion when he would say, are you following me? Um, what's going on here? How can I get this to stop? She would act like, what are you talking about? Uh, I don't know. There's, uh, we don't have anyone following you, et cetera. Uh, and her superior got really... Uh, pissed off by Damien's uh, suggestion of putting him on the payroll. And he got really red in the face and he like, slammed his fist down on the table uh, and basically told him to get lost. Um, so that didn't end well. That whole encounter did not end well. Soon after that, uh, Damien calls me to tell me that things are getting even stranger because uh, he tells me that there are people in his house that he can't see. Uh, they're interacting with him, pushing him, touching him. Um, he, the only time he ever actually caught a side of them, well, there was a couple of occasions, but, uh, one time he was in the bathroom and as he was opening the, the medicine cabinet, the mirrored medicine cabinet, as he was opening it up, as it was in motion, he caught a sight of what looked like, uh, a tiny, very slender person in some, in some sort of um, skin-tight kind of suit, outfit, uh, that was nonetheless kind of transparent, but he could see a little bit of it while the mirror was in motion. Every other time, he hadn't been able to see anything, but he mm -hmm. could feel them, he could touch them, or sense their presence, or, or hear them. Uh, this was the, one of the few occasions where he, could, he actually saw something. Uh, and when he told me that, I thought, you know, this is getting really weird, but uh, Damien's not an optical physicist and he's not a science fiction writer, and it does kind of make some sort of cockeyed sense that if it was light-bending technology or something like that, maybe it would be affected by, by the mirror. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then he said that sometimes he would see them as an outline. Like um, Damien, when he was younger, had migraines, uh, and he would sometimes see these like auras, uh, and he said it was like that. It was like these little sparkling dots in the air, like a, a tiny, like a weird outline of these sparkling dots. But that was very rare. He saw that just very occasionally. Um, and I thought, well, that's interesting, but I just, I just put it in the back of my mind. He told me he was at the beach. He actually saw tracks in the sand at the beach, like following him around. In other words, as if it was wow. a visible vehicle uh, trucking along on the sand. Um, but there was, you couldn't see anything. Um, uh, there was an incident, and while all this is happening, he's slowly losing weight. At one point, he's 
starts urinating blood. Uh, he's got a constant metallic taste in his mouth, which I knew was a symptom of electromagnetic poisoning. And I knew that because I had been friends with Walter Boart, the journalist who wrote the book Operation Mind Control, which was really the first important book about uh, MKUltra uh, that was published in 1978. And he told me um, he had this strange, what he called a waking dream. Uh, there was a period of time where I was not in contact with him, about three days, and I couldn't get a hold of him. I'd call him and no answer. And uh, he told me, I finally got a hold of him. And he acted like, uh, I said, where have you been? And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I've been right here the whole time. And I said, no, I've been calling you. I haven't been there. Uh, and he said that he had this weird waking dream that he was sitting in his couch watching TV or whatever, and that in this weird, vague dream, a couple of people came into his house and and held him down and injected something into his arm. Uh, keep in mind, Damien, uh, you know, when he was younger, uh, had been a heroin addict, and, uh, and I realized, by the way, that Damien is not a reliable witness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm well aware of that. Uh, Damien tells me that in this waking dream, he held his arms over his chest, like, like in a cross uh, pattern, and tried to prevent them from peeling his arms back. But finally, they, they, they did, and then that's when they injected him with something. That was the last thing he remembers in this dream. Then the next thing was like waking up in his apartment and, you know, me calling him and saying, where have you been? So he basically had, he realized he had like three days of missing time. Like he thought it was a Saturday and then suddenly it was actually a Tuesday. Um, and so when that happened, um, it was around, around that same time that I decided to um, call uh, Lita Johnson. I said, you know, she had given him her card with her number on it. So I said, why don't you give me her, her phone number? Because uh, I just wanted to establish that she existed in objective reality <laughs> outside of Damien's mind. Uh, I mean, I'm, I was pretty sure that he was telling her the truth, but I just, I wanted to confirm it. Right. So I, I call, I call the NCIS office and, uh, she answers the phone, special agent Lita Johnson. I say, hi, I'm Robert Guffey. Uh, I go, I just wanted to ask you about, uh, my friend Damien. And she's like, who are you again? She, she was very... Like, why are you calling me? Why are you asking me these questions? The entire transcript of this conversation, by the way, is in the book. Uh, and I said, well, listen, you, you, you arrested Damien, right? And she said, yes. Um, uh, and but she, but I, I, we let him go. And I said, okay. I go, he says that you're following him. And she's, and she's, it, the entire conversation was like, uh, she would never answer anything directly. It was kind of like CYA, legalistic, uh, dancing around things. Uh, I said, you know, Damien says he's being followed. And her response was, oh, no one in my agency is currently following your friend. In other words, it wasn't like, no, we're not following. No, no, hmm. no one in my agency is currently following your friend, which is probably a true statement. True. Uh, and, and I said, well, okay, so is it okay if he leaves town? Because I, at this point I thought, I naively thought that if he just left San Diego, all the 
surveillance and harassment would end. Uh, so I said, is it okay if he leaves town? And she says, uh, I wouldn't advise that. And I said, well, why not? And she said, well, it makes things difficult later on. So I said, but you don't have any interest in him now. She said, no. So it was, she was telling me paradoxical statements. It didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. you know, on the other hand, they have no interest in him. On the other hand, advise him not to leave town. Mm -hmm. It might make things difficult later on. The whole conversation uh, was very convoluted, and basically it ended with her implying that Damien was crazy. Uh, so I got off the phone with her around the same time Damien's was at the beach and he ran in, into this beachcomber who was selling his van. He had this black van. He was selling it for like $500. And so I said to Damien, go just buy that van. Just take whatever money you have and get that van. He was going to do that, but then his wallet disappeared from his apartment. <laughs> um, so I... When when Damien, you know, tells me about the waking dream, he tells me about he's urinating blood and all this, uh, he's getting thinner. Uh, I, I decide that I'm just going to send him the money. So uh, without, I mean, he didn't ask me. I just I did it on my own. I Western Unioned him uh, the five hundred dollars. I call him up and I said, I just sent you five hundred dollars. Go and pick it up and buy the van. He says, oh, my God, uh, he says, that's fantastic. Um, and I said, let me give you the password, because when you send money via Western Union, the other person has to give a Western Union a password. <clears throat> so, you know, some stranger doesn't pick it up. And I was about to give him the password. And he says, he says, no, 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 don't, don't give it to me now. I'm going to pack up my stuff. Uh, and then I'll call you back and then give it to me, because he didn't want me to say it over the phone. And then someone to hear that and then go and like intercept it. So, so I said, okay. So he packs up his stuff. Call, uh, he calls me back about two hours later and I'm about to give him the password and the phone goes dead. So I call him back again. I'm about to give him the password. The phone goes dead. That happens like a dozen times in a row. <laughs> um, incomprehensible <laughs> how, how that could happen a dozen times in a row uh so i suddenly remembered that uh, when you make a collect call uh, there's a brief moment uh when the operator says will you accept the charges when you can briefly hear each other so i decided i placed a collect call to damien and she said will you as she's saying will you collect the charges i yelled out a hint as to what the password uh was mm -hmm. and it was it the password is, it was, uh, well, the, the hint was vaguely uh, pornographic, so uh, I won't say what it, what it was, but uh, it's in the book. Um, uh, and so I heard, I hear Damien laugh when he hears it, and I realize he understood what I was saying, and then the line went dead. So uh, he goes to the Western Union, he picks up the money, buys the van, puts all the stuff in there, uh, he leaves uh, a note uh, on the door saying, I've gone west, which would be into the into the ocean. Right. <laughs> he meets his manager, the, the the landlord. The landlord was in in like worse condition than than Damien. Uh, he 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 was extremely haggard at this point, and he seemed extremely relieved that Damien was was taking off. Uh, I, 
have a feeling that the landlord actually was aware of everything that was going on. <laughs> he seemed just completely like like the weight of the world had been lifted off his shoulders when Damien told him he was taking off. <laughs> Damien gets in the van. Uh, he leaves. Um, he calls me um, a couple hours later, and he tells me that there are these little like flying saucer-looking things uh, following him. Now, at the time, 2003, this is now January 2004, uh, you know, so about six months have gone by. January 2004, there weren't drones everywhere. Now there are. Mm-hmm. I was at the beach at Seal Beach and a drone flew overhead. Uh, someone shot a drone out of the sky above Dodger Stadium. So drones are everywhere now, but not in 2003, 2004. Uh, it was like total science fiction. He's describing these little like discs, like smaller than a sewer manhole cover, uh, that are flying around, buzzing him, uh, uh, following him all the entire way. Uh, and I said, okay, that, that's strange. He drives all the way to Texas. Um, from Texas, he makes his way towards Minnesota, where the mother of his child uh, was living. He had a young son at the time. Uh, and uh, he's heading in that direction. Around this time, uh, either just before he gets to Minnesota or just afterwards, I, I can't quite remember at the moment, he stops off at this bathroom. Uh, and he goes in the bathroom, and as he's washing his hands, this guy comes in, goes up to the sink next to him, and he turns to Damien, and he says, uh, if you just give them back, this will all end. And he says it not in a kind of ominous, threatening way. It's mm-hmm. more like a pleading tone. Like, please just give this back, and this will all end. Like, for him. Like, you wouldn't have to follow Damien around anymore. Right. Uh, and, and the, the second he says that another guy comes in and drags the other guy out of the bathroom, like by the collar, as if he had said something he wasn't supposed to do. That was the only other time where, where they, they broke from the script and actually admitted that this was actually happening outside the other time when, when Lita said, yes, the food fight made us all laugh. Um, because of course the whole purpose of this kind of surveillance and harassment is to make the subject think they're going crazy. Right. Um, uh, and so that freaked out Damien. He leaves, gets back in the van, he drives. Uh, at one point, I get a phone call at like 10 o'clock at night. And it's this guy with a thick southern accent. And he goes, you Professor Guffey? And, and I go, yeah. He goes, you know Damien? And I, I go, yes. And I'm thinking, what is this going to be? I mean, what? what now? Uh, and he, this guy proceeds to tell me that uh, Damien's van broke down the side of the road. And he and his friend picked up Damien and brought them back to their house. Mm-hmm. And that Damien had told them this wild story. And he said, you know, he says he's being followed by little tiny flying saucers and little invisible people and all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, is, is this true? And I, I said, well, yes, indeed, it is true. In fact, I then told him an abbreviated version of the story I just told you and uh, I said they're flabbergasted uh, and I tell them can you please put Damien on the phone they put Damien on the phone 
Damien tells me the van broke down. These two guys picked him up. He told them the story. And they, for some reason, jumped to the conclusion that he was being followed by demons or something. Like, they, they thought he needed to be, like, Damien thought they were going to, like, exorcise him. Um, uh, and I, I said, as we're talking, one of these guys, in the background, he, he yells out uh, to the other guy, like, the Jeb or whatever his name was, come over here. And they go to the window, and there's a little tiny flying saucer drone like flying right outside their house it had followed them from the from the van uh and they're just totally flipping out and they're taught they're describing it as i'm on the song with damien and that completely convinces them that in fact damien's telling the truth so i i get back on the phone with them and i tell them look can you please like put gas in the van and, and fix it and they they were willing to do whatever they had to to help him at that point they they fix his car they they fix his van they put they put the uh, gas in it um by the way i should mention that he's he's decorated the van with all kinds of wonderful slogans like gaslit and loving it uh like bumper <laughs> stickers and like signs on top of the van um so i guess so the drones could see it as well yeah um he goes all the way to winona kansas which is this tiny, tiny town that has a population of like less than 200 people in it, it's like a semi-ghost town. Uh, Damien uh, settles down there for a period of about three months. And for some reason, something about Winona, Kansas, the harassment stops completely while he's in Winona. And I don't know if that's because there's only like 198 people living there. So people would notice if a sudden surge of, of jarheads came parading through town following this guy in a black van or is it because everyone in Winona, Kansas probably has a gun and the optical camouflage technology does not protect you from, from bullets so mm -hmm. maybe maybe that's why but for some reason they, they pulled away and they left him alone uh, for about three months. He gets a job and he's able to kind of decompress a little bit and he goes on the internet and he's trying to find anything there that looks like the invisibility technology that he saw. And he comes across this article about Professor Tashi, T-A-C-H-I, Japanese inventor who created this invisibility cloak. But that didn't look like what he saw because it only it only um, works from like one angle. Uh, then uh, he came across other things that didn't quite match. And finally, he comes across this website, uh, Camelio.net, which is Richard Schoenger's website. He's looking at it, he's reading the description of it, and he calls me, he says, you know, this sounds like what I saw based on the description here. Uh, you, should look, you should look at this. So I go to the website, I look at it, and I'm, I click on the about, about the inventor. I click and I'm reading about Richard Schoenger, and it says that he's, uh, you, you know, he has a, a top secret clearance, um, that Project Camellio is, is a, uh, a private, um, uh, uh, a series of private experiments that he's doing by himself, not connected to his job in the government. Uh, and it also mentions that he's a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freemason at the Scottish Rite Temple in Long Beach. Uh, I found that odd because I am a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Mason at that same Scottish Rite Temple in Long Beach on 9th and Elm. Uh, 
Uh, and it suddenly occurs to me, I must know this guy. I must have interacted with him at some point. Um, and so I sent him an email. I said, listen, I'm a writer. I've, I've interviewed people like uh, Dr. Stephen Heller, who's the Gnostic bishop of the, of the Gnostic uh, Church in Los Angeles. Uh, I've interviewed all these other people, Paul Laffley, the painter. And um, uh, I would like to interview you about your uh, optical camouflage technology. And, uh, I'm, I, and I said, I'm also, I'm a member of the same lodge. And he writes back and he says, oh, Dr. Stephen Heller, you interviewed him? I, I know him. He's a friend of mine. Um, uh, sure, uh, you can interview me. Um, why don't you meet me this Saturday and after the rituals, we'll go somewhere and you can interview me. I said, perfect. So I tell Damien, Damien immediately leaves Winona to come down to be with me on this Saturday because he wants to meet Schoenger. Uh, he was having a dispute with his landlord at the time, and so when he left, he poured a bunch of wet cement down the faucets of all the sinks and the bathtub in the house, and then he just bailed. Uh, and then he arrives in Long Beach. Uh, that Saturday morning, I wake up, I go to the Long Beach Scottish Rite. Um, I meet Richard, and I realize, yes, I have seen him, though I had never been formally introduced to him, because uh, he has a very distinctive voice very distinctive uh, manner and the way he uh, performs the rituals. I had seen him performing the rituals on stage. Um, and so I introduced myself and he, and he says, okay, you know, after everything's done, we'll go out for lunch and, and you can interview me. So after everything's over, uh, I go, I, we meet up with Damien and me and Damien take Richard out to lunch at George's Greek cafe in Long Beach. We have a lunch, and then I take him back to my office on campus at CSU Long Beach, and me and Damien interview him. And I told Damien, don't say anything. Uh, we haven't said anything to him about why we want to interview him. I've just said I want to talk to you about your technology. I thought it was a very small chance that anything that Richard was going to say would in any way overlap with Damien's situation. My expectations were extremely low in that regard but Richard starts talking and everything he says uh, matches up with what we we already know about Damien's experiences he, he mentions just completely out of the blue he doesn't know anything yet about Damien's experiences he mentions that um, well I developed this technology it was help make soldiers invisible in the battlefield, but also it has other applications. He says it has psychological warfare applications. You could make a foreign dictator like Fidel Castro. Just make, you can make him think he's saying all kinds of weird things. You can make a, a tree look like an elephant. You could make, you can make it seem like there's an alien landscape outside your house. Uh, you could make it seem as if a, a, a house is bigger on the inside than it appears to be from the outside. Um, he says, uh, um, just, just on and on, everything he said applied to Damien's situation. I, I sometimes I look over at Damien and, and, and Damien's kind of going white, <laughs> uh, uh, hearing how everything is so, is so eerily matching up with his experiences. And we interviewed him for about two hours and at the end of it, I said to Richard, okay, Damien has a story to tell you. 
And at first, Richard seemed a little wary as if maybe we were about to sandbag him or something mm -hmm. uh, or accuse him of something. Damien starts telling him the story. And at first, Richard looks really kind of confused or skeptical, like, like, are, are they saying that I did this? <laughs> you know, um, then when Damien gets to the part of talking about the, the mirror and how he could see it briefly when the mirror was in motion, he, mm -hmm. I, Richard kind of leaned forward and I could tell he was now he was more interested in what Damien was saying. Then when Damien said about how sometimes he would see the little people as these auras in the air, these little sparkling dots, Richard, he just kind of like shot forward. He goes, that's exactly what it looks like when the technology is not working right. And Richard knew that Damien was not an optical physicist, and that was not a detail Damien would make up or pluck out of the air. Like At that point, I could tell that Richard was fully invested in what Damien was saying. And he, Richard had already mentioned, even before this point, he had already mentioned that he had met with the Navy 10 years prior to this. He had met with SAIC, the same corporation that, that's located within walking distance of Damien's apartment that specializes in creating exotic technology. In fact, its headquarters was located just across the street from the Whaley House in Old Town, San Diego. I know that because I went there I, to see I wanted to see how close the SAIC headquarters was to mm -hmm. Damien's apartment. It's, it's right across from the Whaley House. The Whaley House, as you no doubt know, uh, has a reputation for being among the most haunted houses in California. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've actually gone, I've, I've visited the, the Whaley House, I've taken photographs there. And I thought it was really interesting that this corporation that, that specializes in exotic technology would choose to build their headquarters across the street from this haunted house. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it, it, it makes one wonder if that was a coincidence or did they build it there because there's something special about that location. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so Richard mentions that, yes, that representatives from SAIC had come to meet with him. Uh, they, had, they had come and uh, taken tours of the laboratory that he shared with Dr. Lutberger in Hemet. Uh, they were very impressed. It seemed like they were going to make a deal with them, and then suddenly they backed out. Same with the Navy. And I've seen, I've actually seen the letters uh, from uh, high-ranking uh, admirals written to Schoenger saying they were extremely impressed with, with their presentation, their uh, Project Camellio uh, presentation. Um, and then, same thing, same as with SAIC. It looked like they were going to offer them uh, a contract. And then suddenly they did back out. Uh, it was as if they were coming in to vacuum up whatever information Richard had um, and then leave him in the lurch. Richard mentioned during the interview before Damien started talking to him that he had already initiated a FOIA request because he suspected that his technology had been stolen mm -hmm. by the military and was being used uh, in violation of his patent uh, and that he had hired a lawyer. Um, because he wanted to um, sue the military. Uh, of course, it's very difficult to sue the military. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Richard and, and Lev Berger had given um, presentations at, uh, Sp at uh, Spa War, uh, which is a, a kind of a, a conference where you um, uh, propose 
uh, new cutting edge technologies in warfare and defense. And uh, when he was giving his presentation, not long uh, before we were uh, interviewing him, uh, a woman in the audience, he was about half hour into his presentation, and a woman in the audience stood up and said, you can't be saying this. This is all top secret information. And Richard said, no, uh, I'm not here as a representative of my employer, Northrop Grumman. I'm here as a private individual. This is my own private project, Project Emilio. She said, no, everything that you're saying is not, you need to stop talking. And uh, the organizer of the event comes out and, and they have a, uh, a little conference uh, off on the side uh, for a moment. And finally, the organizer convinces her to let Richard finish his presentation. Richard finishes the presentation. Immediately, this woman takes him into the back room and starts grilling him. Uh, uh, but I, I, I know that you're revealing top secret information. He say, no, it's not top secret information. This is my own private uh, um, uh, research. And finally, he has to take her out to his car and show um, the paperwork that he has to show that this, that he had permission to be here. This has nothing to do with Northrop Grumman. Um, and finally, she reluctantly admits that, oh, okay, I guess you can be here. But she kind of uh, tipped her hand. In other words, by her reaction was, wait a minute, this is top secret information, basically right. revealing the fact that, in fact, the, the, there were uh, entities in, in the United States uh, defense uh, industry that was actually uh, researching this or actively using it at the time. Uh, so after, and then the transcript of that whole conversation is, is in the book. So, so after this, I thought that Damien was going to be very, uh, optimistic or mm -hmm. hopeful because here was proof that he wasn't crazy, but in fact, his reaction was the exact opposite. He kind of spiraled. Uh, I think he was holding out hope that he was crazy because that would be a much easier situation to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, all you have to do is like take meds and then everything's going to be fine. Right. If, if you're not crazy and it's, this is all happening, then that there's no simple solution mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to that problem. Right. Right. Uh, so the, I lost touch with Damien soon after that, uh, for about a year or more. Um, and I actually kind of tried to, push it all out of my head. Uh, it was almost like too disturbing to, to think about. And I got married. I, I had a daughter and, and so for a, for a few years, I was busy with other things to even, to even think about any of this. But, but then I was teaching a literature of science fiction class, uh, at, at CSU Long Beach. And one day after class, a student came up to me and said, can you think of something that we think of as science fiction, but it's not. Uh, and I said, oh, oh, I got a story for you. Uh, how about invisibility technology? And, and standing there in the hallway, I told him this whole story. Uh, and uh, he's, his jaw was slack. Uh, and he said, you got to please tell that story to the whole class next class session. I go, okay, you remind me. And he left and I sat, I crouched down in the hallway. I pulled out a spiral notebook. And I wrote down just bullet points of everything I had just said to him in the order I had just said it. 
for, you know, up to that point, it was so complicated, such a complex web of synchronicities and coincidences and weirdness that I didn't even know how to begin telling the story, if I were to even attempt to do that. But somehow, this extemporaneous encounter, uh, where I was just talking about it to someone who knew nothing about it, I, I kind of realized, oh, that's the way to tell the story, just as simple as possible from the, the beginning and going through, and, and that that those bullet points that I wrote down in the journal became the outline for Camellio. And, and after that semester, that summer, which was the summer of 2010, I think, I, I wrote the whole book, Camellio, um, in, in a very short period of time. Uh, and fortunately, I had all these audio tapes. Uh, re- I had recorded the interviews with Richard Schoengert. I had recorded all these conversations with, with Damien. I had taken copious notes. I had recorded myself talking to other people about it at the time, so I was able to lock down the dates and everything, uh, specific dates. Um, so the book is it's, it's filled with uh, research and corroborating uh, data. Uh, and I was able to get you know, confirmation from not only from Richard Schoengert, uh, an engineer with a lot of experience in the defense industry. I was able to get confirmation from Dr. Lev Berger, who mm-hmm. I took a tour of, of Dr. Berger's laboratory in Hemet. Um, and though Dr. Berger didn't say he believed 100% Damien's story, he did confirm that this technology was, was possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I got the confirmation from from Lita Johnson uh, that, she, in fact, you know, that she had actually arrested Damien. Um, so it was it was very important for me to to um, make sure I had uh, outside sources that backed up uh, what Damien was saying because as I said earlier I knew that Damien was not a would not be considered a reliable witness mm-hmm. uh, because he's been in and out of prison uh, a, a drug addict uh, but the fact is as I've as I've since learned uh, particularly talking to people after the book has been published. That in fact they per, uh, purposely target people who have these kinds of backgrounds, uh, marginalized people um, uh, who would not be believed, uh, and that goes back to MK Ultra, where people like Dr. Jose Delgado uh, was experimenting on uh, prisoners, uh, on children, mm-hmm. on uh, female mental patients, which. He writes about in his book uh, "Physical Control: uh, Physical Control of the Mind," published in 1969, I believe. Um, and by the way, uh, interesting. Uh, those of you who are familiar with MK Ultra uh, and Jose Delgado will be interested to know that uh, Jose Delgado died in 2011, and I saw his obituary in the LA Times. I was not aware at all until that moment when I re- read his obit that Jose Delgado was, had retired to sunny San Diego in exactly the same area where Damien was living at the time, which I found to be an amazing uh, coincidence that, that of all places, Dr. Delgado had decided to retire in the exact same area that Damien was living at the time and was living there when Damien was going through all of this in 2003, 2004. Um, so, so, uh, you know, Damien, uh, 
uh, continues to experience uh, this kind of uh, surveillance and harassment. Uh, he was living in San Francisco for a time. Eventually, he moved out to the Lost Coast area where his mom was living. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've seen a documentary on Netflix called Murder Mountain, that's it was in Humboldt. It was exactly <laughs> that area. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of marijuana farmers up there. When Damien moved in, uh, all the little drones were coming over surveilling. And these marijuana farmers brought out their uh, uh, rifles because they <laughs> thought they were there to try to capture images of their illegal marijuana uh, farms. And so the, the marijuana farmers would come out with their rifles and try to shoot these drones out of the sky. You know, Damien didn't even bother to try to explain, uh, you know, don't worry about it. They're here for me. Um, and eventually he moved up to the Pacific Northwest. And um, I, I've gotten interesting feedback from, I, I there, was a, there was this, um, uh, at, at one point he ended up homeless in the Pacific Northwest. And a guy who was camping with him, this younger uh, gentleman in his early 20s contacts me to, to tell me that he had been camping with Damien out on the street and this was the first time he had ever been homeless his parents had kicked him out of the house or something like that and the guy's name was was David and he told me that when he met Damien Damien had a reference that there was this book uh, called Camellio but he didn't know exactly what he was talking about and he said that he thought he thought, is this what it's like being homeless? <laughs> You're just constantly harassed and, and people are constantly doing these like, horrible things to you. Like he thought, oh, that must be what it's like when you're homeless. Later on, he, he parted ways with Damien and went on his own. And so I, somehow he found a copy of Camellia or heard an interview with me and he, mm-hmm. he contacted me via Facebook. He goes, I just want to tell you, like, I saw all this stuff like firsthand. Yeah, I didn't know what was going on. I thought this was just how homeless people are treated in the United States of America. <laughs> now that I've had experience aside away from Damien, I now know that that's not the case. This was completely unique to, to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that I, he said, now that I've heard your interviews and read the book, I now I understand what was going on uh, with, with Damien. So there's been further uh, confirmation. You know, and and um, and I've, I've I've talked to many people who have read Camellio, and it was kind of like throwing a message in a bottle out in the ocean. Like I didn't know where it was going to end up or who would see it, but I knew that people would contact me, and they did. And people, very reputable people, not just marginalized people, but uh, uh, high-powered attorneys um, uh, uh, have contacted me who pissed somebody off, uh, and you know, got on the list and received, was on the receiving end of the same kind of surveillance and harassment. So it's not just marginalized people uh, who are subjected to this. Mm-hmm. It's just anybody who, you know, pisses them off. Um, and one of the last times I was talking to Damien, he was telling me about how he, he was living with these people in this apartment and he decided to uh, make iced tea you know, you put the jar up on the windowsill in the mm-hmm. sun, uh, and he waited for hours for it to be done. Finally, it was done. He was looking forward to drinking it. He unscrews the lid, and without wanting to, he takes it and dumps it over his own head. Uh, 
he said he had no control over what his arms were doing, uh, which is, and then there was another incident not long after that where he suddenly shot up out of bed and he actually propelled himself into the wall and the, the whole computer just like crashed off the desk and his roommates came in and they said, what the hell was that? He said, oh, I'm sorry, I tripped. Because how do you explain? Oh, I just got flung out of my bed mm-hmm. across the room and ran into the computer. Uh, I find this interesting because I interviewed Melinda Leslie, uh, who is a uh, claims to be alien abductee. She's uh, investigated my lab's military abductions. Mm-hmm. And uh, she told me how she had very similar experiences. Uh, she was back in the year 2000. She was on coast to coast when it, it wasn't our bell and it wasn't uh, George Norrie. It was whoever was hosting it in between those two. And she was on coast to coast talking about her my lab research. Mm-hmm. And she was staying at her friend's house. Misha, her, her partner, was also uh, claims to be an alien abductee. They were, she was staying at Misha's house in San Diego. Uh, the next morning they get up because they have to drive after they were on coast to coast. The next morning they wake up because they have to drive to San Francisco to be at a conference. Melinda is getting ready. She plugs in her hair dryer. Then her arm turns the faucet on the sink and her arm puts the plugged in hair dryer under the running faucet. Oh, and in her mind, she didn't want to be doing that, obviously. Um, but she couldn't help herself. And she was able, finally, at the last second, she was able to pull back. And this, and this happened also, something similar happened to Misha, where she was driving along, uh, and suddenly she put her foot on the gas and tried to go through a red light, even though she didn't want to be doing this. Uh, Melinda, I mentioned Melinda at the back of Camellio in the, in the last chapter, I think, because I talk about how I attended one of her lectures at Orange County MUFON, where she was talking about her MyLab research. And we, I was, uh, a bunch of us had gone out to, to dinner. And I just so happened to be sitting next to Melinda. So I start telling her about Camellio and all about Damien's experiences. This is before the book is published. And I get about five minutes into the story, and Melinda interrupts me and says, Oh, does this tie into SAIC? Like, just like out of the blue, how many people have SAIC floating around at the forefront of their brain? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> out of the blue, she said, does this have anything to do with SAIC? I said, yeah, it does. And she said, oh, well, you know, I've researched like 200 MyLab cases, and a lot of them tie back into SAIC. That's how she knew that. Uh, I thought that was pretty incredible. But, uh, you know, I mentioned Jose Delgado before. And uh, people who know all about MKUltra will know that in the 1970s, Congress uh, destroyed a lot of the MKUltra uh, documents. Um, But nonetheless, uh, some keep leaking out uh, from time to time. And there was an article that was recently published. I think it came out in like 2017. Um, And it was all about uh, this document that had been uncovered and there's, there's no way to know uh, who the scientist is because the scientist is not um, identified. But it sure sounds like Jose Delgado. And in the document, he talks about um, being able to control these um, dogs 
these remote control dogs from afar. Uh, and that was his specialty uh, because in Spain, uh, Jose Delgado was, was from Spain. He first made headlines because he was able to crack open a bull skull and put in a device that enabled him to control the bull. He, he, had, he got into, you know, it's Spain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ultimate symbol of machismo is bullfighting. Delgado gets into the bull ring with this bull that has the device implanted in its skull. And behind the little cape, the matador cape, uh, Delgado had this remote control device. So he was able to actually make the bull step backwards and forwards. Um, and so this made the newspapers. And soon after that, the CIA recruits him. And he comes to America, and he's teaching at Yale, and that's when he starts working on the physical control of the mind. So, you know, he was able to do that back in the 50s. So how far has the technology advanced, you know, uh, by this point? And so it's interesting to consider that perhaps it ties into um, the the MyLab research that people like Melinda mm-hmm. and Misha Johnson uh, have been um, have been pursuing. Um, for those of you who don't know, my lab, it's just it's military abduction. People who claim to have been abducted by aliens who are then re-abducted by the military. Um, and the military often asks them, grills them qu- about, about the technology of the UFOs, of the alien spacecraft that they claim to have been on. They, they grill them and want to know how the, how, how the ships operate. Uh, how, how was it piloted? How is it controlled? Because that's 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 the ultimate uh, the ultimate goal uh, of a lot of these military people is remote control. You know, remote control, death, uh, action at a distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know that the old hardware style of warfare is 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 obsolete. So they need to know how do we do this from from afar. So they're they're really interested in knowing um, how this supposed alien. Uh, technology operates. So supposedly they re-abduct these alien abductees and really uh, grill them. And a lot of the abductees say that uh, the MyLab experiences are far more horrific than uh, their experiences with the uh, supposed extraterrestrials, which is mm. sort of darkly humorous. But um, um, so uh, I, I did a whole follow-up interview with Richard Schoenger that was published in Nexus Magazine where I asked him, uh, what was your inspiration? for creating uh, Project Camellio in the first place. Uh, and I, I think this interview was published, I think it was, it was about a year after Camellio came out. I think it was around 2016. Uh, and and he said in there that his interest in this whole idea of optical camouflage came about from his interest, A, in UFOs. And he developed an interest in UFOs in the 60s. And he noticed that in a lot of the reports, the UFOs would kind of flit out of uh, um, physical space as if either they teleported to another dimension or they were able to cloak themselves. And so Richard started thinking, well, how would we, how could we do that with the technology that's available to us now? Uh, so in a way, you could say that the Project Camellio is kind of like the cargo cult version of of this UFO technology, you know, mm-hmm. the old Tarzan films where the, the you know, you'd see the, uh, the natives uh, building a, uh, a plane out of bamboo and worshiping it. You know, it's people like Richard, scientists, visionary 
um, inventors uh, who are looking at the UFO technology and saying, oh, how do we mimic that? Mm-hmm. And, and also Richard had been initiated into uh, the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians when he was stationed on the island of Guam back in the 50s. And uh, he heard early on uh, these stories from other Rosicrucians about these supposed um, ascended masters who could cloak themselves with a kind of cloud or, or rather make other people believe that they couldn't see them, rather like uh, the shadow the pulp hero from the 30s who could cloud men's minds so they couldn't see him. Uh, Richard was fascinated by that idea, and that also got him thinking about it. Um, uh, so, uh, as I said before, Richard Richard, um, uh, Richard passed away on uh, Christmas morning uh, uh, of last year, um, and I, uh, when I, his daughter called me uh, to tell me, and I immediately went out onto the beach and I, I spell out his name in huge letters with a stick. Uh, and, um, as I did this, uh, a, a double rainbow appeared in the sky. It was the most vivid double rainbow you've ever seen appeared in the sky. And my, my wife got a excellent photo of this moment, but, uh, I shouldn't be surprised because Richard's uh, life was a series of weird kind of near mystical synchronicities like that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Dr. Lev Berger, his partner in Project Camellio passed away only two weeks before that. So it was mm-hmm. as if they were joined together at the hip, even on the, the astral realms. So Absolutely. Um, I'm, uh, if you, if you go to the February 2nd entry on my, on my blog, mm-hmm. uh I have a link to Richard's obituary. Um, and in fact, you can hear, Richard tell his side of this story himself. Uh, if you go to uh, Jeff Brady, uh, has a show on WBII in New York called In Other News, um, and he interviewed Richard in 2019. So you can hear Richard Schoenger tell tell his side of this whole story on that show. If you, I'm sure if you just Google Jeff Brady, sure, it's G E O F F Jeff Brady. In other news, Richard Schoenger, I'm sure you'll find the episode. I also linked to it in the my blog post, which I did, I think, around December, maybe 26, a few days after Christmas. I, I put a blog post announcing that Richard had passed away, and I included the link to that interview if you want to hear Richard tell his, his end of the story. Sure, that'd be great. That'd be great. So what happened to Damien? Do you know? Well, yes. I mean, Damien... Uh, Damien's still experiencing uh, this kind of harassment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm still in touch with him. Um, he doesn't really want to, um, like I just said about the kid, uh, uh, the David kid who was who was with him. Right. Uh, I mean, people who are with him begin to experience the surveillance and harassment as well. Mm-hmm. So he prefers to stay well away uh, from people who might fall into the orbit of all this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was contacted by a documentary film crew um, before the book was published because uh, um, 14 Times had published a cover feature called Strange Tales of Homeland Security, which I wrote as a kind of, um, kind of a, a short synopsis of the book and 
14 times made it their cover story. And it was published, I, I, I include the photographs and some documents along with the, the article. And a film crew from England contacted me and said they, were, they wanted to do a documentary about gang stalking, mm-hmm. about surveillance and harassment, about targeted individuals. Uh, and they wanted to be put in contact with Damien. Uh, and so I said, well, let me contact him. So I did. And, and I said, well, you know, maybe this would be a good opportunity for you to get your story out. You know, you could tell the story on, on camera. And he was super wary of that. Like he, he didn't want anything to do with it, which was mm-hmm. strange because back in two that I thought it was strange at first because back in 2003, he really wanted to, to tell people about it. He mm-hmm. wanted, he wanted to talk about it. And he said, I, I don't, I just got a bad feeling about it. I don't, I don't want to talk to them. I thought he was being overly cautious. Um, but then, uh, so I, I told, I told him he doesn't want to go on camera. Um, and then months later, maybe it was a year or more later, um, I was interviewing someone else, uh, who had contacted me because of Camilio. And she talked about how the same film crew had contacted her and she had actually sat down for an interview with them. And they, they like interviewed her for like five hours or something and just disappeared. And there, she can find no reference to the production company anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the documentary was never made. Nothing as if they all disappeared. And then I heard the same story from other people who claim that they're being surveilled and harassed. And I suddenly realized that maybe Damien was right to be wary about it. Mm-hmm. I, um, it sounds almost like the situation with Richard being approached by SAIC and the Navy and then vacuuming up whatever, whatever information uh, he has and then just kind of disappearing into the night. Right. Um, I suspect that Damien probably, um, I, I guess you could say that he's paranoid, mm-hmm. <laughs> but one naturally would be in the situation, you know, if he wasn't paranoid before, uh, he is now, but, um, it's probably, uh, a natural response to everything that's occurred to him. Question from the chat room is, do you think that Damien has a implant that, you know, that, that maybe of those three days that, that he had that dream or waking dream about them pinning him down that, that, that they put an implant in him so they could find him. That's, that's a good question. I actually, I was in contact with an attorney at the time who I happen to know. She's, she's an entertainment lawyer. Um, she, she used to work at Warner Brothers, but she also, um, she grew up, she was the subject of these kinds of MK Ultra style mind control operations. So she, she was very sympathetic to Damien's story. In fact, she tried to help him at one point by actually introducing him to an attorney who, uh, out in the Midwest, who's aware, very aware uh, of these situations and that, and that they're real. Um, and she asked me the same question. Uh, she said, she said, do you think the, do you think the tracking device is in the van or do you think it's in him? Um, uh, he's since lost the van. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suspect it's in him. And if that happened, it happened during those three days, mm-hmm. uh, when, when he was, uh, when he had that missing time 
situation. I, I think so. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I think that that's a pretty good assumption. It's yeah. speculation on my part, of course. I, I yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a documentary that Solaris Blue Raven did. Um, um, oh, I'm, 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 I'm trying to remember. Um, Eye of the Remote. It's called Eye of the Remote. Uh, Solaris Blue Raven. Uh, she hosts a, a show called Hyperspace, and she also, uh, you know, is a targeted individual. And she actually had these people run a, um, a stud finder over her. And you can see this on camera. And the stud finder goes off. You know, you run it over the wall to see mm -hmm. where the nails are on mm -hmm. the wall. Uh, they, they, they ran the stud finder over her, and actually it went off. Um, uh, you can see that on, on camera. Um, and I interviewed another woman who is working with two doctors who I know to be reputable. Um, but, um, and I've seen her, um, she allowed me to see her medical records and they had actually been able to track the, the devices, multiple devices in her. They were able to track where the signal was going <laughs> and they, they tracked it to a, um, multinational corporation in, in San Diego that advertises as being, um, researching, uh, you know, transhumanism, emerging mm. man and machine. Um, she's actually trying to get a, a real court case together because she has actual medical reams of medical evidence, uh, in this regard. Mm. And also, uh, there's a fellow who is a, uh, a very well-known talk show host, radio talk show host in New York, whose name I will not mention. Mm -hmm. um, I spoke to him over the phone for well over two hours, and he claims that he's been surveilled and harassed with this optical camouflage technology since October of 2013. Mm. He's still on the radio now, and uh, unlike Damien, he had the resources to capture this phenomenon on video. And you can clearly see people dragging this equipment onto his property and creating holograms uh, to mess with his head, just like they did to Damien. And I've seen those videos. Um, Richard saw the videos, and he even wrote an affidavit saying, uh, yes, this looks like the optical camouflage technology that, that I created. Um, and he, in fact, let me briefly read this to you. Mm -hmm. This is the affidavit that Richard wrote. It says, I, Richard Schoengrid of Costa Mesa, California, make oath and say that I reviewed photographs and videos submitted by Mr. Blank in November 2015, including, one, a June 10th, 2015 photograph of a person using cloaking technology sitting by a utility pole and apparently holding a laptop or control panel. Two, a video from February 9th, 2015, showing individuals dragging a piece of material west on Blank Drive near Mr. Blank's home, which appears to be a large sheet of camouflage material. Three, videos from February 28th, 2015 and March 1st, 2015 of numerous individuals running through a backyard of a home to the west of Mr. Blank's residence who appear to be using active slash adaptive camouflage. Based on my 52 plus years as a cutting edge technology expert with the U.S. military and private industry and as the man who invented and patented cloaking technology. Number one, I certify the photos and videos as authentic. 
Two, it is my conclusion that very unusual activity is in fact occurring around Mr. Blank's residence. This activity involves numerous individuals using extremely advanced adaptive or active camouflage and the number of operatives in the extended time period, at least January 2015 to June 2015, indicate a very large-scale, sophisticated, and costly surveillance operation targeting Mr. Blank. Three, Mr. Blank is in fact under high-tech surveillance in part utilizing the cloaking technology I invented and for which I obtained the 1994 patent. In particular, the June 2015 photograph of the person sitting next to the utility pole with a laptop control panel is definitive proof beyond any doubt that Mr. Blank's assertions of a sophisticated surveillance operation around him are quite correct, subscribed and sworn to before me on the second day of January in the year 2016. Um, and uh, Mr. Blank uh, had his evidence confirmed by a retired uh, lieutenant colonel from the DIA, and um, um, he added that the suit with with stealth uh, personnel gear probably constructed in 2008, and that this was all due to a a personal vendetta. Uh, uh, There was a a fellow who Mr. Blank had pissed off, who had um, ties to the military industrial entertainment complex, uh, and that this this was the reason, in this case, why Mr. Blank had come over under the purview of these people. So he, I, I know that he's actually putting together a a, a real court case. Uh, involving this uh he's 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 got the he's got the goods um and there there have been other people uh, as well i mean i just recently spoke to um a woman named uh josephine grace Mm -hmm. um she has her own website called uh targeted artist dot wordpress dot com and uh richard personally visited her home and and assessed her situation and believed that she too was being harassed in exactly the same way as Damien. And um, Richard and I talked about her case a couple of years before he passed away. Um, and she, she too told her story to Jeff Brady on, on, in other news. Um, she's had firsthand experience with the optical camouflage technology, uh, which they use to try to gaslight her and freak her out. Um, she was, her harassment started, uh, not, not the optical camouflage stuff, but just surveillance mm-hmm. and harassment, the low level stuff started for her in, uh, Missouri, which oddly enough is where Richard was, was born in the 1990s. Uh, she became a freelance newspaper journalist and her beat was like chemical and radioactive pollution. And she uncovered this mothballed nuclear power plant underneath the uh, campus of the, um, University of Fayetteville, uh, which the students didn't even know about, and she blew the story wide open. So around the same time, she got a job at this big corporation, and she had these uh, work-related uh, injuries. And when she reported the injuries, she noticed that she was being followed, and um, she eventually moved to get away from the, the surveillance, uh, just like Damien did. And she moved to Springfield, Missouri, and um, uh, she was seeing all kinds of similar things that Damien saw. Like she was seeing eyes superimposed on the walls of her bedroom, 
she she saw the same kind of uh, people wearing the invisibility suits and 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 all of that. But uh, Richard was so impressed with her story that he actually went out. He, he met her once uh, when she was visiting in San Diego, uh, and then he met her again in her home uh, in in Missouri. Um, so it's it's been a very interesting uh, experience um, uh, evaluating uh, some of these stories that have, have come uh, to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the the I, I mentioned before that there was a, an, an attorney. Um, again, this was before the book was published. Uh, I think um, his name's Kevin, and uh, he contacted me after the Forty and Times article. And after hearing me interviewed uh, on, on some radio show, I, I don't remember which one, but he was uh, an attorney from Minnesota, uh, and he had represented this uh, African-American Muslim woman in a discrimination uh, lawsuit against um, the St. Paul Police Department. And he first encountered the optical camouflage technology in, I, I think, um, 2018 in, in, in Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, he thought that he, he saw one of these guys wearing the suit uh, in his basement, and he thought that maybe this person was like field testing the, the technology, but they were they were really uh, laying on thick with him, surveilling and harassing him to the point where he eventually had to leave his, his entire very successful uh, uh, law practice behind. And he flew out to Southern California. He met with me in my office. I, I recorded a whole conversation with him. After, from there, he went to um, San Francisco. And in May of 2016, uh, in San Francisco, he sends an essay that he wrote to the ACLU in Minnesota detailing all the harassment that he'd experienced. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was around about 11 o'clock or so after emailing the essay from like a Starbucks, uh, he, he gets jumped by what he thought were at least uh, four different uh, invisible people um, on Harrison Street. And uh, they were sort of sparkly, similar to the way Damien described them. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, he could see their footsteps on, on the, in the gravel as they were coming towards him, and they chased him down the middle of the street near the ballpark. Uh, they put a bag over his head in an alley, and they started asking all these weird questions, like, you know, who was the football coach for the Wayzata football team in 1983? Uh, who was the quarterback? If you don't answer me correctly, I'm going to put a bull in your head. Uh, they put a, a gun against his head, or what felt like a gun. He couldn't see it. Uh, they beat the crap out of him. And then he ends up in St. Mary's with a skull fracture, and uh, St. Mary's kicks him out uh, without treating him. And he ends up at uh, San Francisco General. He spends like six days there. And when he tells the doctors what happened to him, they transfer, transfer him to the psych ward. Uh, so he spends about six days there. And then when the psychologist sees him, it turns out the, the psychologist went to the University of Chicago. Uh, for a psychology degree. And this guy, Kevin, the lawyer, he went to the University of Chicago for a law degree. So the psychologist says, you know, what the F are you doing here? And Kevin says, 
well, there's been some misperceptions. I, you know, I got beaten up. I, I, um, I just need to get out of here and go back to, to, to Minneapolis. And then, um, the doctor says, well, yes, you do. Uh, the cops hate you. You need to get out of town. Uh, and so the psychologist had to escort him out of the hospital. The people hmm. in the front, uh, at the front desk, they, they kept, uh, coming up with excuses why they couldn't discharge him. And finally, the doctor says, you know, you need to discharge this man, like right now. And, and, and the lawyer thinks, uh, he told me, you know, if not for the psychologist, he thinks he never would have left the psych ward alive. Um, so the psychologist leaves, um, and uh, Kevin um, is able to leave uh, the, the hospital, and he walks about 15 blocks from the Tenderloin to 3rd and Folsom, uh, a few blocks off Mission Street, and a car follows him the, the whole way home. So he tapes like five or six spoons around the frame of his door. Uh, so if anybody tries it, the spoons would just go flying onto the linoleum floor. He'd hear it. So uh, around like 2 a.m., he wakes up uh, and hears these spoons crashing on the floor. And, and he's like, you know, get the F out of here. And, and Kevin runs into the kitchen. The door's wide open and the spoons are all over the floor. <laughs> so he stays up. He doesn't go back to sleep, of course. He stays up till about 6 a.m. He, he borrows 300 bucks from some friends and he goes to San Francisco international get the one-way flight to minneapolis uh and to this day he's trying to rebuild his uh his law practice the one he was forced to abandon and so and this was retaliation for for winning this discrimination case or at least that's what he suspects i mean you know you, you can't know for sure right. but i was going through with him saying well have you ever represented someone you know uh like in a case against the military or against law enforcement and that's when he said oh well, there was this, this prominent case with this woman, uh, which, which I looked up and, you know, everything he said checked out. I mean, he did, in fact, represent that woman and, and won the case against the, the Minnesota Police Department. Uh, so it's not just marginalized people who are targeted. It's just it's, it's anyone who, who happens to piss them off. The way I wrote about it in the Camellio was mm-hmm. imagine you're on the 405, you accidentally cut off. Leave a Johnson on the freeway, and then boop, you go on the list. Uh, it can be just something as random as that, you know. Um, uh, I, I really recommend that if, if anyone thinks that they're experiencing this kind of behavior, uh, go to a site called FightGangstalking.com. Look in the upper left-hand corner, and there's a section there called Tactics Tactics for Fighting Back. You click on that, you'll see a lot of just very simple, uh, mundane, very um, uh, things that you can do that don't cost a lot of money uh, that can help uh, in this situation. Fightgangstalking.com. Left-hand corner, tactics for fighting back, and click on that. Um, and also a helpful thing is just, I, you know, some people have told me that they can they read Camellio and they can kind of back engineer like what Damien does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you can see that when he, whenever he flips the script on him, uh, he, he can he can guide, he can kind of get a few steps ahead because these people are very unimaginative. I mean, I suspect that they're given manuals or scripts like this is what you do in this situation. Mm-hmm. When X does this, you do Y. 
so if you do something uh, that's not expected, they're mm-hmm. completely at sea. They don't they don't even know how to handle it. Um, and there's numerous examples of that uh, in the book and things that Damien has told me after the book was published. Thank you so much. This was this was fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, I, I thank you for inviting me on. So you said earlier you have another book coming out. Uh, what else is next for you? Uh, well, I, I'm working on uh, um, a book called uh, Hollywood Haunts the World, an investigation into the cinema of occulted taboos, which, uh, which analyzes cinema from... 1921 to 2021, mm-hmm. um, uh, not just esoteric symbolism, but what I call uh, hidden taboos. Uh, in other words, the way that pop- popular media kind of deals with taboo subjects in a kind of encoded way, often in the form of genre films like horror films, science fiction. Um, uh, and there are a lot of esoteric occult and, and, um, um, conspiracy theories are, are analyzed, but through the lens of, of cinema. Uh, I'm almost done with that. The next book I have coming out uh, is called um, Operation Mind S dash dash dash. I don't know if I can say the full right. name. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, it's that and, word. And the, the subtitle is uh, QAnon and the Cult of Donald Trump. So the book analyzes the weird, wild origins of QAnon mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, the, the the pop culture and um, um, literary uh, precedents uh, to to where all of the uh, the QAnon um, content comes from. It's it's analyzing the the esoteric and pop culture roots of, of QAnon. So it's kind of Operation Mind F, blank, 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 uh, colon, uh, QAnon, the cult of Donald Trump. That's, that's going to be published by Or Books, the same publisher that published Emilio, in either next month or by June. It should definitely be out. And then I have a novel coming out later this year called Dead Monkey Rum, um, uh, which is all about um, the artist, Stanislaw Sukolsky, uh, if you, if you, on Netflix, there's a documentary called Struggle, The Life and Lost Art of Stanislaw Sukolsky. Uh, he had, he was a masterful Polish sculptor, uh, who was like on the same level as Michelangelo in terms of his skill with sculpting, but he mm-hmm. had these really peculiar ideas about human evolution that overlaps with cryptozoology, uh, yetis, the bumble snowman, <laughs> Bigfoot. Uh, and so this, this novel, Dead Monkey Rum, uh, is kind of a weird urban fantasy that spirals out from the bizarre evolutionary theories of Stanislaw Sikalski. So those are the two books I have coming out uh, this year. Cool. And how do people find you? Uh, well, um, my website is uh, cryptozoology dot com uh cryptoscatology that's the name of my first book it's a word i made up crypto is latin for secret scatology is the study of feces so you put them together it's the study of secret feces which was the subject matter of my first book uh so it's cryptoscatology.com and i'm also on twitter and facebook all right terrific thank you so much for coming on tonight i really appreciate it 
and we'll have to get you back on sometime to talk more about this stuff. This I, was crazy. This is crazy, but it's true. I mean, it does happen. Because when you think about it, I was just going to add in before we go. Um, when you think about the military tactics, like he, like even during times of war where they'll blast rock and roll music into places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. Sometimes when I tell people about how they were, like, shining the halogen lights and, like, the mm-hmm. horns outside Damien's apartment, people will say to me, oh, they don't do that. The law enforcement doesn't do that. I was just watching a documentary called City of Angels, City of Death. It's a documentary. It's a multi-part documentary all about the spate of serial killings that plagued L.A. in the late 70s and early 80s, like just statistically like off the map. Mm-hmm. You know, It's like every serial killer in the country was operating in L.A. at that time, literally passing each other in the night as they're dumping, dumping bodies off you know, near Griffith Park. And um, there's one point where they're talking about the Hillside Strangler, you know, the, the two – um, the, the 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 two hillside stranglers, and they ta- they show surveillance footage of them surveilling uh, one of the hillside stranglers, mm-hmm. and they actually show them beeping their horn at him, uh, letting him know that they're watching him. Yeah. So you actually see the thing that Damien was describing. You see displayed uh, in the surveillance footage that was like from the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, that stuff does go on, whether people want to believe it or not. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much, and I hope you have a great weekend. Same to you. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, that was a great show. It's a little longer than usual, but uh, well worth it. Great topic. Great guest. Uh, tomorrow, well, there is still tomorrow. Uh, there might, uh, starting next Friday. Not the, Not tomorrow. I want the night off. Starting next Friday, we're probably going to be going to some Friday shows. I don't know if it's going to be every Friday and maybe every other Friday, but we're going to be going to some Friday shows. I have a special guest who has come back into my inner circle, who I haven't had on for a long, long time, and she wants to do some shows. So Friday will be her day to do shows. So I'm just going to wet your whistle for that. Um, uh, The other night, Yes, last night, actually, when I was talking about the remote reader that I know, that's who it is. And she and I have been, had been friends for many, 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 many years. And, uh, you know, life kind of separates you and all that. And that's what happened. And uh, it's been about four or five years since I've really talked to her. So uh, we got together yesterday and decided that we wanted to work together on the radio again. So that's what we're going to start doing. So, uh, like I said, it won't be this Friday. I'm looking at messages. Thank you, Athena. Thanks, Marisa. Thanks for everybody that came. Uh, so it won't be this Friday, but it will be next Friday, probably, that we're going to start doing that. That'll be April 1st, which is April Fool's Day, which is kind of funny. Uh, for everybody going Saturday night, I'm going to go ahead and get you the address and location. And it's going to be a fun Saturday night. We're going to be out in the cemetery. Hopefully it's not cold. <laughs> it never fails. It gets cold out there sometimes. So bring it, you know, bring extra jackets or whatever you need to bring just in case it does get, get cold because this weather... Even though it's really nice right now, it's changeable. Okay. So, and I heard there's a rumor of rain on the weekend, uh, possible. So just, just be prepared for everything, but I'm looking forward to meeting you guys just as much as you're looking forward, I guess, to meeting me, some of you, um, Sunday, we will be back at 6 PM for our weekend read of, uh, through the woods by Anna, Anna Maria Manello. It's a mouthful. 
and uh, it's a great book. In fact, she just told me the other night over Facebook that the book is about to get really spooky. So it's based on a true story. So uh, that's a good one. So check in Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Monday, I'm going to tell you right now, Ron Felber is going to be here. Ron Felber is the author of a book called Abduction in the Mojave. All right. I have read a lot of alien abduction books. This is the scariest book I have ever read. And it's not so much about the abduction itself. It's the, the events that happened after the abduction is what got me with this book. So he is going to be with us. I've been dying to get somebody to talk about that book. And so I just happened to Google one night and found him to be the author. And then I actually found an author page and all that got his contact information. So he's agreed to come on and talk about that book because it is something. You know, what happened to that husband and wife is something and what happened afterwards. So be on the lookout for that. We'll be back usual time Monday at 6.30 p.m. But again, you know, I'll see, I'll see, I'll see you guys out at the ghost hunt on, on Saturday night. And then I will see you guys on Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific when I do the uh, weekly read. Okay. All right. That's done. Isn't that great? You can visit us at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. All of our videos are there. Uh, that's a good way to find our YouTube page, too, because sometimes our YouTube page is a little hard to find. You know, when you Google our YouTube page, you got to Google California Haunts on YouTube. Not California Haunts Radio, but California Haunts on YouTube. And you can find the page. There's over two, there's more than 200 videos there of all kinds of topics. We just don't cover ghosties. We cover spousal abuse and other types of topics. I'm a journalist. That's what I do. I like to break it up, right? Um, people on YouTube, please subscribe. There's that little uh, ghost down there with the Sherlock Holmes hat on and the magnifying glass. Please click on that, subscribe. The more subscribers we get, the happier I am because we're trying to build this up. And the only other way we can build this up is by word of mouth. So if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. The more we get it out to, the more we're going to come watch us and check us out. All right. And again, please subscribe to our YouTube. Now, the other thing I have to do, we're nonprofit. So uh, all this comes out of my pocket, the cost for the internet, the cost for the, ser- cost for the stream yard service, you know, and all the extra little costly things, especially for my paranormal team, equipment, whatever, something breaks, comes out of my pocket. So if you can find it in your heart to help me out a little bit to keep the show on the air, I would really appreciate it. That's at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, please do it through Venmo. Go into Venmo, type in California Haunts, and you're right there. It's that easy. A couple of clicks, boop, excuse me, and you're done. But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank you all for your support over the last year and a half. You know, we were on Block Talk Radio for for years and years. This show started in 2007. And we finally made the switch over, I believe it was uh, the end of 2019. No, it was 2020. That's right, it was 2020. The end of 2020. So we've been out about a year and a half doing this format. And we switched. So, you know, it's going really well, and it's because of you guys and your support. So, like I said, the more the merrier. So, if you could share it with people you know, that would be great. Okay? Anyway, I will see you, some of you, on Saturday. But officially, I'll see you guys on Sunday. Have a good night.